their connectors, networks. That's actually something that I really enjoy doing. I love connecting people. I love connecting research ideas. I think I, I would quite like to be a mycorrhizal fungus because you would form these sort of very intimate relationships with other organisms. It's this huge open pipe system underground where the nutrients are flowing between plant roots. And to be able to experience that kind of massive underground flow in these fine, fine tubes is something I definitely want to experience. Welcome to Life in the Soil, a podcast by the Plant, Fungal and Soil Ecology Lab at Freie Universität Berlin. I'd want to be a mycorrhizal fungus just because the vastness of it, right? It can grow for kilometers and be this single individual. You're not limited to forming a partnership with just one plant for the rest of your life. You can chop and change and you can, you can connect with other fungi and you're part of this living network below the soil. Imagine you live inside of your favorite food, whatever that is, and you are not just eating it, but you, you're inside of that food and you absorb it via your entire body. I think that's a pretty cool thought. Thanks for joining us for the second episode of this podcast on soil ecology, supported by the Biodiversity Research Network. My name is Anja Krieger, and I'm your host. In the first episode, we explored the special architecture and strange conditions in soil. Now we want to take a closer look at the fascinating organisms that live in this hidden habitat. And we'll start with a kingdom of life that often gets confused with plants, fungi. They can help decompose dead leaves or animals. They can be pathogens, making other organisms sick. And then there are the so-called mutualists, which team up with plants or other organisms. So fungi can have many different lifestyles, and all are equally important. I think they're one of those groups that sort of fall between the cracks a bit, because they're not immediately obvious um, when looking around you and when thinking about or, or classifying types of organisms. Katie Field is a professor of plant soil processes at the University of Sheffield in the UK. My main area of interest and expertise is in the interactions between plant roots and soil fungi, uh, which together we call mycorrhizas. I used to think of fungi as mushrooms, delicious, mind-expanding, some even poisonous. But in fact, the little stems and umbrellas you see on a hike or eat for lunch Those are just the fruiting bodies of a much larger organism, like the apple of a tree, but a tree hidden in the ground that you don't see. If you pick it, sometimes you get what's left of the mycelia um, attached to the bottom. It's coming out of the soil. Um, your instincts probably are sort of, well, well, this is a bit like a plant, so I'll put it in with plants. But really, that is only the very tip of the fungus. Its body is formed by fine filaments called hyphae, tiny living lines that spread out invisibly below the ground. They form intricate networks, the mycelium, and they belong to an ancient kingdom of life. It first emerged even before plants and animals colonized the land. 
if we if we had a time machine and went back 500 550 million years we got out the time machine we looked around ourselves we wouldn't see any plants on earth's land masses it would be mostly barren however if you'd looked a bit closer at the land surfaces you probably would have been able to see uh, actually there were some sorts of filamentous fungi present on earth in fact recently scientists have found that actually filamentous fungi could well have been on land up to a billion years ago which is kind of mind-blowing around half a billion years ago something equally amazing happened aquatic plants moved out of the water onto land these first land plants probably resembled the simple mosses we know today There's strong evidence that it was the fungi that actually helped these plants make their first steps on dry land, often in a fascinating way. The body of the fungus got intertwined with the body of the plant at a cellular level. Mycorrhizal fungi form these really incredibly intricate and beautiful structures within plant cells called arbuscules. These little arbuscules are finely branched fungal hyphae that look like little trees growing inside of cells, which is sort of leads to the name arbuscule, uh, tree-like. And you can make out arbuscules in fossils that are sort of 410, 440 million years old um, and in sort of modern day plants. And they, they look almost identical. It looks like the early plants and fungi started a partnership, a symbiosis connected and merged by finely branched fungal hyphae deep in the cells of the plants. And across these structures, they were able to share their resources. Carbon is transferred from plant to fungus in the form of fatty acids or sugars, and then nutrients are transferred from fungus to plants in the forms of ions, so phosphates, nitrates, things like that. This became a hugely successful evolutionary partnership. Fungi cannot photosynthesize, so they cannot get their carbon like plants do. Instead, they have to access it in organic form after it has been fixed by plants. And plants need mineral nutrients. So their symbiosis made it possible to share and trade. So if you can imagine 500 million years ago, if you were an alga or a very tiny little land plant just making your first steps onto the land, And you haven't got any roots, right? And there's no real soil. So you can't feasibly, there's no real way for you to get nutrients. Um, and so these fungal partners, we think were really important in helping them get nutri access to nutrients that are kind of bound up in minerals and rocks that were present. Fungi are just so different from us. I guess that's the most amazing thing. If you could, I'm not sure. I mean, there's many organisms that I guess are quite different from us, but nothing quite as extreme as a fungus because there's two things about them that make them really different from us. One is their connection of tubes. That's what a fungus is. So just imagine you exist not as this, this body with your two arms, two legs, one head. This is what's called a unitary um, plan for an organism. Fungi are the exact opposite. They are an example of modular organisms. So they consist of just modules. In this case, a module is a tube. This is Matthias Rillich, my co-producer on the podcast. He's a soil biologist at Freie Universität in Berlin and runs the Soil Lab here. 
Many of the 50 scientists working in his lab are doing research on fungi. Matthias often asks himself, how would a fungus experience the world? Your entire existence is a connection of a bunch of tubes. And that to me is, is just way out there in terms of imagining that because you experience just a wide range of environments that are totally different simultaneously. So to, you could imagine, you know, you are eating um, a pizza on one end and, um, and an apple on the other end and you dip into some cool, refreshing beer and then you have another end of you in, in French fries and one end of you is in the sun, the other end is in the shade and um, one part is hot, one part is cold and all of that basically you experience at the same time. Uh, so you have many places at the same time because you just exist as this network. That's way out there. It's very difficult to comprehend um, what that really means. And the other aspect is that you are invasive. A fungus is basically made to be a tunneling machine, as somebody once called it. So you live in the interior of solid substrates. So if I imagine my favorite food, let's say vanilla ice cream, so we as animals, we eat it, which means we have a digestive system and then we, di we digest it and get nutrition out of it. And fungi don't do that. Fungi don't eat. Fungi have what's called absorptive nutrition, which means they absorb nutrients via their entire body surface. So you, you like vanilla ice cream and what you would do as a human, you would eat it. If you're a fungus, you grow inside of it and you absorb it via your entire body. I think that's pretty cool thought. Yeah, for me, it would be chocolate ice cream. Ah, so I would be like basically swimming through a pool of chocolate ice cream and eating it at the same time. I would be like immersed, like all of me would be chocolate ice cream. Yes. Um, well, um, swimming is maybe not exactly the right word because it's more like living inside of a solid substrate. If a fungus finds itself in a liquid medium, then it doesn't make this hyphae. Because imagine that, you know, if you're in a, in, a, in a liquid and you make these little lines, you would just get, you know, <laughs> you would get knotted up. I mean, it would be, it would be almost silly, you know. So um, when a fungus finds itself in an aquatic environment, then it makes yeasts. So yeast is not, um, it's not a particular type of fungus. It's a form of a fungus, namely the single-celled form of a fungus, like baker's yeasts that makes beer and wine and dough. That's one, one manifestation of a fungus. But the more common manifestation is that it exists as these lines. But these lines only make sense when you grow in a solid substrate. So I wouldn't say you swim in ice cream. <laughs> I would say you invade the ice cream as, as a solid substrate. That is what fungi are made for. That's the entire idea is that they are tunneling machines. So you give them something s solid to invade, this is what they're made for. What we heard from Katie is that basically without fungi, all the plants, all the green life in the terrestrial ecosystems might not even exist, right? They've basically engineered the world for all of us. I think that's a valid view of what may have happened back then. 
Yes, I think by favoring land plants and allow them to colonize the terrestrial surface, they may have changed forever the face of the earth. And um, actually, it's a, it's, a, it's a fascinating idea of why it wasn't it them who took over, right? I mean, but there is, there is fossils of these amazing structures that I would, I would pay a lot of money to see one of those in real life, but that were like trees of basically fungus or maybe more like a lichen. I think it's not exactly clear what that really was. But it, you know, you may ask yourself, why wasn't it the, the fungi that took over and uh, really formed this planet? Why was it plants that uh, give it basically its face? Yeah, like why did they retreat into the ground? Yeah. Yeah, well, you know, one one uh, trivial answer is that they are not photosynthetic. So, you know, they are like you and I, chemo-organo-heterotrophs, which means they need organic carbon for their making more of their own cells and for deriving energy. So, and that's got to come from somewhere, and that's and from some one, <laughs> and that someone is is plants. So, I mean, there is no ecosystem possible with just fungi. There needs to be autotrophs. These fungal networks are really everywhere. You know, roughly 80% of, of all land plant species have these fungi in their roots. Toby Kears is a professor of evolutionary biology at the Free University of Amsterdam. She explores the underground markets of our vascular mycorrhizal fungal networks and the evolution of symbiosis. So at first, I think that historically, people had thought of these fungi more um, as parasites because they really penetrate into the host cell. And this is kind of a, a growth attribute that you would expect of a parasite to penetrate into a cell. But when I first started this research, scientists were realizing that, no, this was actually a very beneficial fungus and that it was providing nutrients and that it was a, a trade symbiosis and a trade mutualism where both partners would benefit. And so there was this big push to acknowledge that these mycorrhizal fungi were, were positive for plant growth and could actually help plants grow. And my research sort of came in at a point where You know, this echoing of them being such positive symbionts had, had really started to, to be well recognized. And, and our research kind of began to turn that view a tiny bit by saying that, yes, of course, these fungi are in a cooperative partnership. And there's this trade mutualism where both partners benefit. The fungus is getting these carbon sugars and fats uh, from the plant roots. And in return, the fungus is giving nitrogen and phosphorus. And it all seems very harmonious. But actually, if we look even more closely, there are these fungi that enact strategies that are not necessarily as harmonious as people wanted to think at the time. It seems like this romantic vision of fungi is still very much alive. Toby cautions to take a step back. Yes, it is a cooperative partnership, she says. But at the same time, both partners are exploiting each other. Our lab has started to take really high-resolution videos of what these nutrient flows look like inside of fungi. And they're incredibly dynamic. It's almost like surfing a wave inside a very, very small tube. You know, a tube that's thinner than a cotton thread. 
But if you really look down inside these tubes, there are these dynamic flows that go different directions. Um, not only do they change, like they reverse, the whole flow goes one direction and then switches to another, but you have simultaneous flow in, in both directions at the same time. So you have some of the flow going left and some of the flow going right. So they've developed this way of moving resources simultaneously in two directions in a single tube. So I sort of think of it as like a traffic system, um, but there'd be no barrier between the traffic going north and south, and yet somehow the highway is still functioning. It's clear that fungi are able to allocate resources strategically. They can slow down the flow, they can reverse directions, and guide the nutrients into different parts of their network, to or away from different plant partners. They're helping plant roots, but in the same time, they're really doing this to benefit themselves. And I think that a lot of people forget that, that the fungus itself is really trying to maximize how its growth and its reproduction. And so they do this by interacting with plants in very interesting ways. For example, they can be used as a pipeline for communication. There's some evidence that information between plants is sent across these networks. Now, whether that's a passive diffusion of molecules that are diffusing from the plant roots and moving across the network to other plants, or whether it's a real active process is still unknown, but they're still acting as this physical um, network. Bacteria, for example, use the network to move across between different plants. So they can be used as a highway, not only for, for plant um, chemicals and, and molecules, but also as a physical highway for bacterial motility for them to move across. Toby is especially interested in the strategies fungi have evolved to trade with their plant hosts. When does it benefit to be a good partner? And when does it benefit to you know, skim the, the cream off the milk and just take a little bit more for yourself? One of the fungi Toby studies seems especially cunning and sophisticated. Its name is Rhizophagus aggregatum. Probably of all of the strains that we work with, it shows sort of the most extreme strategies in terms of its ability to cheat the plant. And this, this fungus in particular is really interesting because what it's good at is taking up nutrients from the soil And rather than automatically trading them with the host plant, it actually stores these um, nutrients, for example, phosphorus, in its network until it's able to get a better price for that phosphorus from the plant host. So this fungus can keep resources until they're worth more. And that's just one of the strategies found in fungi plant economies. It's really quite intriguing, considering this is an organism that doesn't even have a brain. To Toby, this has fascinating implications. I think for so many years, we've seen microbes as sort of dull, asocial organisms that, you know, simply divide and, and move resources around. But now we're really seeing them more as, as behavioral creatures, right? We're, we're, we can study them the way that you would study animals in nature. They exhibit behaviors just like organisms um, that you would study like birds or, or, or monkeys. You know, they, they, they do it, they share information in a totally different way. 
but they're still showing behaviors. And I think that's sort of where the field is going now, is trying to, to actually capture and track these types of behaviors. It seems like fungi really open up a window to the role and the importance of symbiosis, right? This is true. I mean, uh, fungi are excellent symbiosis partners for a wide range of organisms. And at, at the coarsest level, they're excellent symbiosis partners for plants. But um, fungi are also excellent symbiosis partners with um, animals, you know, like the fungus growing ants, the attine ants. Uh, where they, they're basically they're farming their own <laughs> fungus in their nests. And uh, actually, they don't eat plants at all. They only eat the fungus that they farm. Right? So, I mean, it's also a fascinating association. And in, ah, with you, mean, you mean those little... You mean those little ants that uh, that walk around with like leaves? Um, yeah. They, they cut the, these leaf cutter right. ants? That, leaf cutter ants. Yeah, yes. and, and right. they... And you see like whole streets, streets of them like full with their little leaves and they carry them to their nest. And then they have this fungus that they feed there with the leaves and then the the fungus grows and they they eat whatever, they eat the fungus? They only eat the fungus. They cannot digest the leaves. That's the whole point. So the whole point of that symbiosis and why fungi are such excellent symbiosis candidates for animals is they're just unparalleled enzymatic capabilities. So they can basically crack just about anything out there. Just some things are more difficult for them to digest. I mean, that's why it's difficult to say that that's why, but that's <laughs> that's why <laughs> plants have like, uh, you know, trees with stems. They're made out of lignin because that happens to be a molecule that is really difficult to crack. But fungi can do it. I mean, um, the white rot fungi, as they're called, they can completely dissolve lignin. It just takes a while because it's expensive for them to do. It's difficult to do, but they can they can get it done. Fungi can chew up lots of stuff. Depending on the kind, they can attack wood, certain plastics, and even stone. Their diverse appetites can also make them incredibly destructive from a human point of view. Fungal infections kill large amounts of food crops each year and also cause diseases in humans. So there is this dark side to fungi, which we can't sugarcoat. But they also have all these important roles that they play. As we heard, they feed the plants. And we haven't even covered all the things that different kinds of fungi do. For example, there's the saprotrophs, which are free-living, so they don't team up with plants, so they don't connect with plants. But what they do is they turn nutrients into the form that plants can actually use. So if it wasn't for these decomposers, our planet would basically look like a heap of trash. And then, of course, fungi bring us all these wonderful things like cheese, wine, beer, and mushrooms. And to some scientists, fungi just mean pure joy. It's true. In graduate school, we had this thing called Spore Fridays. And everybody would come with a spore that they had found, you know, mounted onto a microscope. And we would hang out around the microscopes and look at each other's spores and work together to identify them um, to species, but also just wonder in their beauty. 
Bala Chaudhary is an assistant professor in the Department of Environmental Science and Studies at DePaul University in Chicago. She's especially interested in the spores that mycorrhizal fungi produce. Some form, you know, bright yellowish green. Some can be bright red to orange. They can be clear. They can be black. Um, they also vary with respect to really intricate ornamentation. And so some have knobs on the surface of them. They have spikes. They can have long projections. They can be smooth. Um, and they also vary with respect to um, just a whole suite of different characteristics. Some fungi make mushrooms above ground, as you know which then release the spores. And the green stuff that sometimes grows on a loaf of bread or a lemon in your fridge, yeah, that's also fungal mycelium with millions of spores. But these special fungi, the arbuscular mycorrhizal fungi that Bala studies, they exist entirely below ground. They also form comparatively large spores. So compared to all of the other fungal groups, the AM fungi form spores that are much larger. And so it was kind of typically thought that these large spores that are just produced below ground have no way of getting into the air. And so their aerial dispersal is not terribly common. But that didn't really jive with the information that showed that, you know, you see these species all over the world and some are incredibly cosmopolitan. So, you know, if they're below ground and limited with respect to dispersal, but then you see them all over, you know, how does that work? The scientists didn't really understand how these beneficial fungi were able to disperse so widely. With their big spores, Could they even travel through the air? And I remember actually in my PhD defense, my advisor asking me, well, what, what could be driving these mechanisms besides deterministic processes? What do you think about stochastic processes and dispersal? And I said, well, yes, I think they're important. And she said, well, how would you test it? And I was so exhausted at that point, you know, three hours into this examination. I said, I don't know, put, put traps on skyscrapers and look for spores in the air. And then little did I know, several years later, I would move to Chicago where there are ample skyscrapers to put uh, spore traps on. And we just started doing it. So as a new professor working in the city, it was an experiment that I could do by just walking to the roof of my building. Bala and her students put dust collectors on rooftops in Chicago. They wanted to try to track the AM fungi in the air. When would they find them? And which ones? The first surprising result was that We actually found AM fungal spores in the air in this highly urbanized environment during all months of the year, even winter. And that was a real shock to be out, you know, in the middle of a snowstorm and see AM fungal spores flying through the air in, in the city. The scientists also found a surprising temporal pattern. 
between August and November, the abundance of spores in the air was especially high. At the beginning of the harvest season, could it be that humans were playing a role in sending these spores into the air? Right. So in the harvest season, there is a lot of heavy machinery that's used. If you're standing nearby a field during harvest season, you know, you see the harvester or the tractor and behind it, you'll often see this huge plume of soil, of dust that's being lifted up. Now, whenever I am driving and I see a farm machinery spewing soil into the air, I pull over and I take a picture because it's such a striking example of, in this region, how humans are primarily moving soil, creating dust, and then with that, the, all of the organisms that live in the soil as well. Fungi can grow into huge networks underground. There's a report of a fungus that weighs 10 tons and covers many 10,000 of square meters. Presumably, its spore landed there about 1,500 years ago. Today, we humans assist fungi in traveling the world. For example, by the way we farm our land. There are lots of monocultures, soybean and corn, around Chicago. And when the harvest season comes, their fungal friends start swarming through the air. This is just one of the recent discoveries. And there's still a lot to uncover. I asked Matthias about the big questions his lab is working on right now. Yeah, I mean, we're working on a number of different issues. I mean, we are very interested in the forces that, that basically form communities of fungi. So no fungus ever lives alone. They live in, um, in a community of different species, in the soil, for example. And we are interested in all the various parameters that structure these communities through time and space. Global change factors is a major topic in our lab right now. So we are changing this planet on, in, in many different ways. And we are trying to figure out what does this actually mean for the fungi, their communities, what it, does it mean for how they function. Uh, but we also have a bunch of other projects that try to sort of get to the heart of what it means to be a fungus. Um, and this is called a trait-based approach. So what we are doing is we are looking at a very large set, very large in our case is uh, 30, 30 different fungi isolated from the same soil. Basically, they're all different species, but we are trying to get away from viewing them just as species, but we view them as basically a collection of different traits or properties, really, if you will. And then by measuring just a lot of things on this big set of fungi, we're trying to figure out some fundamental things about fungi, like how do they branch? How do they grow? Can they grow fast and at the same time produce a lot of enzymes? Or are those fundamental trade-offs that we can discover? And we are, we are discovering some of these uh, fundamental trade-offs, what it means to be a fungus. Would you like to be a fungus? I would certainly like to be a fungus for a while just to see what it's like. <laughs> I like the idea of absorbing food across my entire body surface. That is uh, strangely appealing. And um, invasive growth. Yeah. But I, I also don't like dark. So, yeah, I think it's a, it's a give and take. But I'd sure like to experience it.
This was episode two of Life in the Soil with Katie Field, Toby Kears, Bala Chaudhary and Matthias Rillich. My name is Anja Krieger and I've produced the podcast together with the Rillich Lab. Our story consultants are Joanna Bergmann, Milos Bielczyk, Stefan Hempel, Tessa Kamenzind and Moises Sosa Hernandez. If you enjoyed the show, share it with your friends and subscribe, rate and review our podcast. To get in touch, you can find Matthias as mrillich on YouTube, Twitter and Instagram. That's M-R-I-L-L-I-G. And I'm Anja Krieger on Twitter. The music is by Sunfish Moonlight and cover designed by Maren von Stockhausen. In the next episode, we'll explore more of the amazing organisms living in soil. And I can tell you, there are many. We'll talk about one of the most complex food chains in the world. A food chain that is super important for all of us. So if you want to know more, see you next time. <laughs>